Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, our thanks to Carol here, who uh, came up and did this for you, for all of us here, um, in recognition of Palm Sunday, and then headed on into Easter next week. Uh, she plans to uh, bring in another one to us and perhaps have someone else. We'll see how that actually works out. We might have two people up here doing chalk drawings next week. Uh, please turn to Revelation chapter 6. I don't actually have a Palm Sunday message today, and uh, Revelation chapter 6 doesn't really lend itself to that. Next week, it's going to dovetail really nicely with Easter, so I'm looking forward to that. But I will say this about Palm Sunday. There was a little boy uh, who was sick on Palm Sunday, and he had to stay home from church. So uh, uh, the rest of the family, when they got home, they were all carrying palm branches. And he said, well, what are those? And, and they told him they're palm branches. He says, well, what are they used for? He said, well, when, when Jesus passed by, the people put them in the road down in front of him. He says, great, the one Sunday I'm not at church and Jesus shows up. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we trust that Jesus is here now. Uh, where two or more are gathered together in my name, he said, I am there also. And so we trust that he is here with us, and we pray that this service will be a blessing to him in honor of him as we seek to follow him better. Uh, all right, easy question. No, the answer is not Jesus, okay? Uh, it's not squirrel either. <laughs> Who can tell me what this is? Just say it. This is an elephant. Now, how many actually see one in person, right? Okay, circus, zoo, in Africa, I don't know, wherever you've been. Um, and that's great. And as we look at this picture of the elephant, you know, we see the entire animal, right? We see the large ears, the long nose that we call a trunk, the huge leg, the massive body, the long teeth that we call tusks, and the relatively short, skinny tail. We take in that entire picture and we say, it's an elephant. But what if you could not see the elephant at all? What if you could only feel the elephant? And then what if you could only feel one portion of the elephant? You might come away with a different understanding of what the elephant looked like than what we see in this picture. And there have been various stories told about that possibility, but imagining that scenario, there was a man named John Godfrey Sachs. He was an American poet who lived in the early 1800s, and he wrote this poem. It is called, appropriately enough, The Blind Men and the Elephant. It was six men of Indistan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is nothing but a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me, tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee, what most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. 
The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. Now, so why did I tell you that? Okay, what relevance could this possibly have here? Well, once you get past all the quoth he's, I think that's hilarious. I like it, but I think it's hilarious. The experience of the blind men in this poem is a lot like reading the last 19 chapters of Revelation. In my opinion, what we read in Revelation chapters 4 through 22 is all of Christian history presented five times with a different focus or emphasis each time. And I think that these chapters need to be considered first as a whole, looking at the big picture, much like we would look at the whole elephant. And then from there, we can focus in on different aspects of the big picture, and we can emphasize different elements of the big picture, but we still need to keep the big picture in mind. Okay? Don't get too attached to the tusk or the trunk when the whole elephant is still there. That's kind of what I'm saying. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy, but it serves to illustrate what I hope we will hold on to as we continue on through the book of Revelation. We live in the church age, which technically began in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the day the church was established, but you can also see it to include everything from the birth of Christ all the way through until Christ returns. And our understanding, based on the book of Revelation, as well as other scriptures, is that when Jesus returns, the church age will end and eternity will begin. That's the elephant, so to speak, the church age. John wrote to Christians in the late first century to give them an idea of what was coming in the church age. As we look at these five presentations of the church age, not all this morning, we're not even going to get all the way through one of them today, but as we look at these five presentations of the church age, let's try to keep in mind, and I'm presenting this as a possibility, it's not the only possibility, I recognize that, but I'm going to present it as though we are looking at five different perspectives on the same thing, kind of like the blind men and the elephant. So with that in mind, let's begin in Revelation chapter 6 and read verses 1 and 2. This is where the scroll that we read about last week, the one having the seven seals, is opened. Revelation 6, 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, as we read about each of the first four seals being opened, there are two consistent things to which maybe we ought to pay attention. The first is that it is the lamb who was slain and yet who lives, who breaks each seal. And that's true for all seven seals. As we saw in chapter 5, the Lamb is Jesus Christ, who is worthy to open the scroll concerning the church age, because he gave himself as an atoning sacrifice to redeem people from sin and from Satan's power. He died and rose from the dead, giving those who follow him and who belong to him the power of the resurrection as well. This is how he established the church and the, the scroll will show his redemptive plan in spite of hardship in spite of persecution, in spite of the suffering that his followers will endure 
in their lives. The second item of consistency in the opening of the first four seals is that each of the four living creatures speaks. John describes the first one as speaking with a voice of thunder. And I think it's not out of line to think that all four creatures spoke in the same way. And each of them says the same thing. He says, come. Now, the first question that arises is, well, to whom were the creatures saying that? Some believe it was to the four horsemen as to each one appears, as though introducing them onto the scene. Others say it may have been to Jesus, asking him to return and to bring an end to the suffering of God's people. I personally think this was said to John, much like Jesus invited John to come up here back in chapter 4. At least one early manuscript has the creature saying, come and see, which would almost definitely be directed toward John. And John's response seems to support this idea as each time the living creatures uh, say come, at least in verses 2, 5, and 8, he says, he responds with, I looked, as though he were responding to that invitation there. So uh, with the first four seals, we come to what are commonly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've heard that expression perhaps. Now the, the word apocalypse is a transliteration. It's just taking the Greek word and making a substitution, substitute the English letter for the corresponding Greek letter. It's a word that we find in Revelation 1.1. It's translated there as revelation. That's its literal meaning. It means to remove the veil or to uncover, to uh, take something that was hidden and make it so it's not. But much of the imagery in Revelation has given the word apocalypse the meaning of catastrophe or cataclysmic destruction even. And these four horsemen are seen by some as the embodiment of that destruction. Now much has been written about the supposed symbolism of the colors of the four horses. I think there may be some symbolism there. But it's the riders typically of those horses that occupy John's attention certain characteristics about them, certain things that they are involved in. In this case, using imagery familiar to those living in the Roman Empire, for the white horse, white could symbolize military victory. And we see that as we look at the rider, we see that the, the rider of the white horse has three main characteristics, and all three seem to represent the same thing. The first characteristic is that he has a bow. Now, the bow was a means of conquest and of gaining political power. The second characteristic this writer has is a crown. There's a different word used for crown here than sometimes. In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is described as wearing a crown. And the word there is diadem. It's, it's like a crown of royalty. The word for crown here is a different one. This is a crown of victory. And again, I think it symbolizes political, vic political power or military conquest. And the, the third uh, characteristic here is uh, his purpose. The purpose of the writer is clear. It says, he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, it's politics. Okay? It's politics and it's power. And, and it's one of those things that exists in the world, sometimes to our benefit, often not. You know, in one way or another, Christians have suffered uh, as a result of politics and the quest of power throughout the church age. 
Under Roman power of the first and second centuries, terrible persecutions took place in the church. Later, Christianity became the official religion of the empire. And you think, well, that's a great thing. No, because then the church became corrupt from within. In modern times, we have heard how Christians have been persecuted in communist countries, in socialist countries, in countries with ruthless dictators, even in Islamic countries. You know, one of the reasons that Muhammad started uh, the Islamic religion was that he believed it would help him gain political and economic power. Today, the fallout from that is that in some Muslim strongholds, Christians are persecuted, tortured, or even executed as infidels. And this is one aspect of the church age that will persist until Christ returns. Look at verse 3. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come! And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. Now, it's a red horse, and red might be used in this case to symbolize blood. We'll see in a minute how that plays out. Let's look at the writer In Matthew chapter 24, also in Mark chapter 13, when Jesus was telling his disciples about his return, they asked him when it would be. Lord, when when will the time of your return be? They asked him what the signs of his return would be. So in Matthew 24 verse 6, Jesus told them, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. And the second horseman is generally understood to represent time of war that will continue to take place in the church age until Christ returns. And certainly we've had a lot of history of that, haven't we? Okay. The second writer has three characteristics given as well. The first one was that he was granted to take peace there in verse 4. The second is like it, that he would cause men to slay one another. And again, this is understood to be descriptive of war. And verse, the, the last part of verse 4 confirms that with the third characteristic. It means the same thing as the first two. This writer was given a great sword. Some translations say a huge sword. Now a sword was the primary weapon of war. Its main purpose, not to get too graphic, was to cause blood loss resulting in death. That's what the sword is for. By some accounts, Politically speaking, the world is relatively peaceful today compared to much of history. We don't feel like that because it's always in the news. You know, any kind of conflict that's out there, we see it. But by some comparisons, relatively speaking, the world is is more peaceful today than it's sometimes in history. But not in one area in particular. In one area in particular... The world is more conflicted now, probably, than it has ever been. And that area is in religious conflicts. Deadly religious conflicts are on the rise, whether on a large scale, such as the ISIS-related atrocities that we see in some of the Muslim countries today, or on a smaller scale, like these. In uh, April 2012, in Buddhist-majority Sri Lanka, monks attacked attacked Muslim and Christian places of worship. Buddhist monks attacking these places. Also in 2012, several worshipers were killed in an attack on a Coptic Orthodox church in Libya. Targeted because they were Christian. 
According to Brian Grimm of the Pew Research Center, in Pakistan, even though minority religious groups like Christians face hostility, and we know about that, there's also inter-Muslim conflict between Sunnis, Shias, and Ahmadi Muslims. Religious conflict is on the rise. One in five countries experienced religious-motivated terrorism in 2013. That's up from one in ten in 2007. In six years, the number doubled. Examples cited in that report included the killing of a rabbi and three Jewish children by an Islamic extremist at a Jewish school in Toulouse, France. A study also mentions the August 2012 shooting at a Sikh temple in Wisconsin that left six worshippers dead and three others wounded, while the 2013 Al-Shabaab attack on a Nairobi shopping mall fell outside of the date range studied in the analysis The Islamic-motivated terrorist attack highlights a steady increase of religion-related terrorism in Kenya, which ignited when more than a dozen Christians were killed by Islamists near the Kenya-Somalia border in November of 2012. That's just a few years ago, and in those short few years since, things are not any better. Some of you will remember back in September, maybe, No, you might not remember this. There was a report back in September. A group called Christian Freedom International reported that a Christian is killed for his or her faith every five minutes in this world today. And it's not just happening in other countries. Here's what you might remember. October 1st, 2015. October 1st, 2015, a person entered the Umpqua Community College near Roseburg, Oregon and killed nine people there, specifically targeting those who identified themselves as Christians. The second horseman still rides. Verse 5. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come! I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, the black horse, black could be seen as a symbol of mourning or woe, dark times indeed. Here it seems to mean that difficult economic times would be experienced. Now, scales, the writer is described as having a pair of scales in his hand. Scales are often used to symbolize judgment. But in this case, scales represent their usual function, that of weighing out an amount. This is the only quality mentioned concerning this rider. Taken together with the color of his horse, we can tell that hard times are coming. And it's defined for us here in just a minute. So I'm not going to say any more about that just yet. Now, the rider of the black horse here is not the one who is speaking. John hears this voice, but the voice comes from between the four living creatures. And he describes it as something like a voice. That sounds to me like he was hearing the words, but he couldn't identify exactly where it came from. Perhaps it was all the creatures speaking together, or perhaps it was a voice that came from them without any of them visibly opening their mouths. Whatever the case, the voice narrates the events associated with the rider of the third horse. And it tells of famine. See, normal prices for wheat at the time of John's writing were probably somewhere between uh, 8 and 16 quarts for a denarius. You know, markets fluctuate, and they'd have more, and they'd have less, and the harvest would be better, and the harvest would be worse. But somewhere probably between 8 and 16 quarts, roughly, of wheat for a denarius. Now, a denarius was the equivalent of a day's wage for the average worker. 
and barley was a little bit cheaper, uh, but not as desirable for human consumption. It was viewed as the food of the poor, barley was. Barley ran around one-third the price of wheat. Here's the problem. The problem comes in knowing that in one koinix, that's the Greek word that's used here that we've translated court, it's not quite, but it's roughly a court, uh, one koinix of wheat was what it took to sustain one person for one day. Now put this together. If a day's wage will only buy enough wheat to sustain one person for one day, what this describes is a hand-to-mouth existence for a single person, for a family, not all of whom would earn a denarius daily, these would be hard times indeed. And certainly, historically speaking, times of famine, times of, of not having as much as other times, times when life is difficult. And as we've already seen for Christians in the first century, because of the choice that they made to follow Jesus and to devote themselves to him and not worship Caesar and not worship the other gods that everybody else worshipped, they might not have a job the next day when they come back if they choose to follow Christ. And so things are going to be difficult. In spite of these difficult conditions, some things would still be available. Oil and wine, it says here, do not harm the oil and the wine. Oil and wine were not used just for food. They were also used as medicine. And not, a lot has been written about the oil and the wine part. I'm not going to get into that. I think the message is that life will be hard, but not impossible. But I don't think we're talking about a single famine in all of history. That there would just be one time, one event that is singled out that represent what this writer is all about. Now, all the things represented by the four horsemen are conditions that will come at various times before Christ returns. In the case of famine, I mentioned before, we, we have these similar passages in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. Well, in the case of famine, we can look at the end of Mark 13, 8. We're in the course of relating this to his disciples, answering their question, Lord, when will it be? What are the signs of your coming? At the end of Mark 13, 8, Jesus says, there will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. He promised that that would be the case. The things associated with the four horsemen are all reminders of the fact that Jesus is coming back. It's kind of an ironic way of remembering him, that he's coming back, because these are pretty awful things taken to their extreme. There's one more. doesn't get any better. Verse 7. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, here's where the horse, uh, we have to clarify just a little bit, because the horse of the fourth rider is described in several different ways. The New American Standard Bible that I'm reading out of says ashen, while the English Standard Version, the New International Version, say pale. The New Revised Standard Version says pale green. The word, uh, Greek word is chloros, from which we get chlorine. Chlorine gas is a pale greenish color. And this color... I almost got the picture and put it up here, and then I thought, no, I don't want to do that to everybody. If you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, and there's that uh, scene where uh, Frodo has been, you know, 
stung by the spider and wrapped up in the web and then carted off and he's laying there and he's got that sickly pale green pallor to him and he looks like he's dead. That's this color, okay? The significance here of the color is that it is the color of sickness or even death, which is appropriate because death is the rider of this horse. It says Hades was following with him. Now Hades was the abode of the dead, or we could call it the grave. The description of Hades following death is not surprising. Just a side note for the technical purists among us, this would seem to be a fifth rider. So the next time uh, the topic of the four horsemen of the apocalypse comes up, you can argue that there were actually five. Just go ahead and interject that, see how that works out for you. I don't know. Not, not a big deal. Here's the big deal. Because, you know, even though that kind of sounds funny, there's nothing funny about what the fourth horse and its riders are all about. Death may be as inevitable as taxes, but the kind of death described here takes four forms, and none of them are considered normal. The first is death by the sword. This echoes what we read about the second horseman. But now we're told the scope or extent of the influence of unnatural death, right? I don't think this is meant to be a mathematically exact statement. Verse 8 says that authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth. Uh, that mean every fourth person will just line up here. Every fourth person will send you out because, sorry, you're going to die in a natural death. That's not how that works. All right. The, the term, I think, would seem to mean a significant portion. And it varies at different times in history. Okay. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but some would die due to, due to violence, either in war or in some other circumstance. And, and where did this trend begin, right? Who, who experienced the first violent death? Abel, right? At the hand of his brother, it started badly, didn't it? Okay, way back in Genesis chapter 4. But it continues, even in the church age. And sometimes it even continues in churches. In the past year, there have been several news stories about people who killed or tried to kill other people in church buildings, right? The second way it's mentioned here that people will die is with famine. According to the United Nations World Food Program, poor nutrition causes 45% of deaths in children under 5. That's 3.1 million children each year. That's just children under 5. How many other people are dying of starvation of some kind? The third way is with pestilence. During the two greatest known, and I put that in there because history doesn't always cover everything, during the two greatest known pandemics of human history, that would be the plague of the mid-6th century and the plague of the mid-14th century, the risk of dying from the plague was greater than 50%. More than one in two were your odds of dying from the plague during those times. Over the past 15 years, many articles have been written suggesting that a plague could occur today, although they believe that its effects would likely be less because of modern antibiotics. Of course, there are many other diseases which cause many deaths each year. Death by disease, death by pestilence, right? And then the fourth way, by wild beasts. You know, animals killing humans, it really isn't a common occurrence today. On average per year in the United States, one person will be killed by a shark, one by an alligator, one by a bear, though I think we're significantly above that average for the past decade, okay? Six by venomous snakes and lizards, seven by spider bite, 
Nine, from disease transmitted by the bites of non-venomous insects like mosquitoes, ticks, and lice. Twenty, horse lovers out there, twenty by horses. Twenty-two by cows. And thirty or more by dogs. Another fifty-eight, on average, yearly, will be killed by allergic reaction to other insect bites or stings. That's in the United States. Do you know what animal kills the most people in Africa? What's that? The, the mosquito is responsible for the most deaths in that it transmits disease, but it doesn't actually, it's not the one actually killing them. It is the hippopotamus. That's exactly correct. Almost 3,000 people a year are killed in Africa by hippos. Okay? Crocodiles account for another 2,500. Now, Paige, mosquitoes, because of the disease they transmit, are credited with more than 700,000 deaths worldwide each year. And again, it's not really the mosquito, it's the disease carried by the mosquito. The point is that although man was given dominion over the earth and all that is in it, sometimes he doesn't exercise that dominion very well, does he? Not only that, but during the time uh, that Romans were seriously persecuting Christians, many Christians were killed by wild animals in the arena as a form of entertainment. The fourth seal is associated with death by unexpected causes, but what's the reality? The reality is that death ultimately comes for all. Verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. While the four seals, the first four seals, relate to conditions on the earth during the church age, the fifth seal has a very specific focus. When Jesus breaks the fifth seal, John sees the souls of all who are martyred for their faith. I had to wonder if he saw his brother James and recognized him there. It doesn't record that, and it's just pure speculation on my part, but you know, James was put to death with, by the sword there in Acts, John's brother. Interestingly, John uses the same expression to describe uh, the martyrs that he used to describe himself in his exile on Patmos. He said he was there because of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. And that's how he describes these martyrs, that they've been martyred because of the word of God and keeping the testimony. John mentions that these souls are underneath the altar. Now, this is the first time John mentions an altar in heaven, but it won't be the last. In chapter 16, just a little preview, we're even told that the altar speaks. So we'll get there. Uh, but here it's not the altar that speaks. Here it's the martyrs themselves, their souls. They voice a cry that is familiar to oppressed people of faith throughout history. How long? O Lord, Psalm chapter 6, Psalm chapter 13, Psalm chapter 35, Habakkuk chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 1. These are just a few places where God's people cried out to him and asked him the same question. How long, O Lord? The martyrs here await justice. 
Justice for those who martyred them. Justice for those who will martyr others. And justice for all those who oppose Christ in any way. And they're told in verse 11 that they must wait until all martyrdom is complete. After which time will come the judgment. Now that tells us that Christians will continue to be martyred throughout the church age, right up until the time Christ returns. And some people have portrayed this as as a time where things are getting better, things are getting better. No, things are not getting better. They're getting much worse in that regard. Verse 11 talks about their robes. You might remember from chapter 3 in the letter to Sardis, white garments were promised to those who overcome, who stand firm in the faith who follow Christ faithfully, right? These martyrs here have received their white robe because they have overcome. They are victorious. They win. And their robes indicate that. Go to verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who? is able to stand. And I start this last section with verse 17 because it puts everything else in context. When the sixth seal is broken, Christ returns. The day of the wrath of God and of Christ has come and judgment will be executed on those who do not belong to him. Now, what the souls of the martyred saints longed for will be fulfilled. And at the return of Christ, many events will take place that will herald the unraveling of the physical universe. In 2 Peter 3, verse 10, Peter describes those events like this. He said, "The The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Well, here in Revelation 6, John says that these things will happen. We'll have earthquake, the sun will become black, The moon will become like blood. The stars themselves will fall from the heavens. The sky will split and roll back like a scroll. And all of earth's physical features will be changed. Clearly, John is describing the end of the world as we know it. You can call it Judgment Day because that's what it is. And that day will be a day of terror for those who don't belong to Jesus. You know, so often in the church, uh, we are accustomed to speaking about the second coming of Christ and looking forward to that day and, and what a day that will be and we're eager for it and how blessed it will be. Well, there's a lot of people in the world that can't look at it like that. Those who are lost will try to hide because they will know in that moment that their fate is sealed. And they will try to escape, and they will not be able to. They will ask the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, really to destroy them, so their existence comes to an end. So that they won't have to face judgment, and so that they won't have to face the wrath of God and the wrath of Jesus Christ. 
But that won't come. As much as they would want to be destroyed in that moment and not have to face that judgment, it won't happen that way. They will have to face it. Let's read a little longer section from Matthew 24. I'm going to read verses 6 through 14 and 29 through 31. It'll be on the screen, but you can just listen if you want to. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, answering that question. Lord, when are you going to return and how, what will be the signs of your coming? Matthew 24, starting in verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pang. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away, and will betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Verse 29 of Matthew 24. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. A day of the Lord is coming, and many will mourn when it does. And you know, those who were trying to hide, they asked an interesting question. Did you see that question in verse 17? When they say to the mountains in verse 16, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath is come, and who is able to stand? That's a great question. Because they have seen that they will not be able to stand. Because they don't have Christ. Many will mourn when Christ returns. Who will mourn? Not the martyrs. No, no, the martyrs eagerly await the coming of Christ and the day of judgment because they have the white robes of those who have overcome. The ones who mourn or the ones who will mourn are the ones who heard the good news about Jesus but have rejected him. The ones who will mourn are those who have decided that they won't follow Jesus. The ones who will mourn are those who have not been united with Christ in the likeness of his death. The ones who will mourn the return of Jesus Christ are the ones who are slaves to sin instead of slaves to righteousness. They will want to hide, but they won't be able to. They will wish for destruction, but it won't come. They will face the wrath of God and of Jesus Christ because the day of the Lord is coming. Jesus died on the cross So you could rejoice 
when he returns. You could rejoice that your sin is forgiven. You could rejoice that you have eternal life. You could rejoice that the wrath of God and of Jesus will be turned away from you. Today, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and if you will repent of your sin, confess your faith to others, be immersed into Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, you can be ready for the day the Lord returns. If you're ready to make that commitment this morning, please come as we stand and sing our invitation song.